0: hi hello hi (laughs) you made me i was like we are we not starting hello
1: hi hi um you know what that reminds me of Well, we have some business to talk about, but first I need to bring this up to everyone because Corinne, you and I have had a very busy couple of weeks and the other day I called you on a walk and you go, hello, and then I start laughing and you start laughing and we just laughed for like four (laughs)
0: minutes straight. And didn't say anything. It's because I was in the middle of a laughing attack. And so when I answered, I was trying really hard to be serious because I was like, Sabrina's calling me. It's probably a business question. Let me, like, be super serious. So I was like, hello?
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I also feel like that's just where our mental state is. And we were, um, we just needed... To laugh. Yeah. And it, I don't even know what we talked
0: about. I think we mostly laughed. I think we truly just laughed. Like one thing, and then we're like, okay, talk to you later.
1: I probably had a purpose to call you, but then, you know, the universe was like, hey, you need to laugh a bit with your friend. So if you
0: guys like laughing,
1: (laughs) you refuse. No, I'm (laughs) just kidding. (laughs) This is two girls, one ghost. Two girls, one ghost. Uh, Business. Hi. We are, we have two live shows. That is the biggest news. Also,
0: that's Sabrina and I. Oh, Corinne. shoot.
1: I always forget to <laughs> introduce ourselves. Uh that's, that's OK. But
0: yes, we have two, we have two live shows. <laughs> Come, we'll have more of a script. We'll, well know what we're doing maybe. there.
1: <laughs> we'll see. But yes, April 14th, we're going to be in Portland, Maine at Aura at 8 p.m. It's a Friday. And then we're going to be in New Brunswick, New Jersey, kind of near my old neighborhood. Um, Corinne, maybe I'll take you to my haunted house. Yes. Uh, That is April 26th at 7 p.m. at Scream, Shout. What's it called? Stress Factory. Uh, At Stress Factory. Scream and Shout and let it all out. Okay. Um, Yes. So come join us. Yeah. Please
0: come join us. The link is in our bio right here, or the show notes, I guess. It's also all over social media. And if you go to twogirlsoneghost.com, you will be able to find a tab all regarding live shows and you'll get the tickets there. But to entice you even more, if you were like, maybe I'll go, maybe I won't, maybe I'll drive the 45 minutes, maybe I won't. We are starting a new Two Girls, One Ghost tradition there, and we're not going to tell you what it
1: is. You'll just have to come find out. You'll have to find out. Mm-hmm. Join us. I like your uh, luring um, people in. You're kind of like the guy in the, mid- in, the in the van um, with candy. Yeah. Do you want some candy, children? Yeah.
0: Uh, I'm gonna one day. I'm gonna walk out on the stage with a trench coat and just like pretend flash everyone. It's just gonna be. I don't know what it will be, but <laughs> <'cause> Zeus. <laughs> kazoos <laughs> my my loon call remember that one episode <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like you're like i don't know what a loon sounds like and I'm you're like, like I, I will show tell you <laughs>
1: <laughs> the other piece of news is campfire stories we are back on patreon campfire stories is going to be every tuesday i think this episode comes out right after we just had our first one mm-hmm. so, i'm sure it went well I'm sure we heard so many stories. Corinne, you and I were hilarious, as always. (laughs) We got scared. We couldn't go to sleep. You know, same old.
0: But we've just been missing campfire stories so much. We know that everyone else has. And I just want to say, I know that, you know, obviously having it on our Patreon is, it puts a barrier in terms of having a monetary amount assigned to entry, but we really wanted to make it as accessible as we could. So we did choose for it to be accessible for every tier. So just $3 a month and you can go to four campfire stories a month and then re-listen to all of the replays at any time. So please still love us.
1: (laughs) And it will be a really good time. And we're also creating so much more content on our feed for everyone to enjoy. We're doing a lot of crossovers. In addition to our regular episodes, we have some other things that we're working on. Uh, we're scheming. We're scheming. We're scheming. Blotting, we're losing
0: sleep and blurring. we're giggling on our phone calls. And that is because we're, we're planning something. Hopefully.
1: Lots of things. Uh, Not hopefully.
0: We are plan. We're actively yeah,
1: planning things. Yeah. So we're always and constantly thinking about you and our listeners well, you are our listeners. I don't know. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're just someone who <laughs> happened upon us. Um, Tried
0: two girls, one ghost for the first time, and they're like, "Ugh, what is this?" This is not what I <laughs>
1: thought it was going to be. Oh, look at this sweatshirt. Oh, what? Where did you get that? Goodwill. This is so great. I it's love a that cheeseburger so much. UFO abducting a human. Who did that? I don't I like know. Someone definitely made
0: that one of a kind. It I feels love it, very though. unique. It's amazing. It's so good. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Beautiful. Perfect. <laughs> it's perfectly you. Thank a you hamburger. Not except for the hamburger. Except it for the be, cheeseburger, yeah. It should be a lettuce wrap. What do you get? Pro- protein <laughs> style. Everyone makes what fun do you, of how me. Do you order. Okay. My In-N-Out order. It's just a piece of lettuce with like mustard on it,
1: basically. Uh it is <laughs> a so, I used to order it like this, which is so funny. A grilled cheese protein style, no cheese, add pickles. So, it's basically <laughs> lettuce, tomato, onions, spread, and pickles. It's basically a salad wrapped up as a sandwich. I mean, that's delicious. It is. That just sounds good. And then I get animal style fries, the bread. Oh, God, I miss In and Out. I know. I'm getting it
0: next time I'm in town.
1: All right. Do they have them in the cool. airport? No, I don't think so. That would be a great idea. I don't know why they don't. Should we start our own franchise? In the is airport? that is In-N-Out 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 In and Out Franchise?
0: I don't know. Maybe don't know. there's many of them. Let's I swear look there's it up. random ones th- outside of California too.
1: Well, I think they In-N-Out's started great. to branch out, but they, yeah, I don't know.
0: I don't know. What do I know? Oh, can I tell you something that I ate the other day that I think you would really like?
1: Yes. And please. it's vegetarian.
0: Oh, I had jackfruit tenders for the first time ever. You know, with chickpea batter, so it was all it was like gluten free. It was basically vegan. It well, except for the aioli, (laughs) but it was basically so
1: good. I I dream of
0: them now.
1: Don't love jackfruit? Yeah. Oh wow! Can we? I didn't. Can we still be friends friends here? Oh no! I thought is this the, the one time
0: I really really like something that is in your category of Sabrina will eat, but it's on your do not eat list. Okay, yeah, that's fine.
1: Because I've I given, given it more for me. I've given it so many chances, and I just because I so a lot of Mexican restaurants will do jackfruit or cactus, and those are two things that I just can't get behind. I need mm. me some tofu yeah. or seitan. Oh, seitan has been my. Mm, my So, ish so good, yeah so good
0: I feel that way about buckwheat
1: Brian really likes buckwheat pancakes
0: that. and I it's not good it's, <laughs> it's not it's the one food I don't like I will try almost anything I enjoy most things there's probably like maybe out of everything in the world there's probably like five things that I won't and don't like and mm-hmm. it is now from what I can remember lamb and buckwheat. So I have two. Okay. Lamb. It's yucky. <laughs> I've told you this. Lamb tastes to me like I would imagine human beings to
1: taste like. And
0: so I can't get past it. I don't know why I visualize that or if I was a cannibal in a past life. <gasps> I was life. just
1: going to say, what if in the past you, in a past life, you ate
0: humans? I think we've theorized about this before because it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> like I was like, mm, this tastes different. Hmm, I wonder if humans taste like this. It was kind of like a oh, this kind of reminds me of human. When yeah, was that's
1: for sure. It. All right. See, now like, this Yucky. makes me this makes me want to do our past life regression even more because I need the answers. <laughs> what I mean, I think happened? the fact that I was
0: repulsed by it either means that my soul is supposed to redeem myself in this <laughs> life for cannibalizing in the last, or I was forced into it, which yes. is
1: why I'm I'm so grossed out by it. I was just going to say, what if it's a, it was a survival situation? Because you also are such a survivalist in this life. So I am. am and I, I to... love learning about the shipwrecks and all of those Ooh. incidents
0: over centuries where people have had to pluck straws and straight up murder the little servant boy on the boat and eat him. <laughs> oh, those, <my> ones, <laughs> those ones are fascinating.
1: Uh, yeah, I definitely think that's something connected to a past life.
0: Yeah, we'll see. We'll do it. It's If anyone has any recommendations yeah. of who to go to, because I feel like we talk about doing past life regression all the time and we always want to do it. And there's been times, Sabrina, where you and I have been together and we're like, oh, let's go. But it's so hard for things like this to actually know someone who's yeah. reputable, right? There's a lot of people out there that prey on people like us who are in- <laughs> intrigued by this sort of stuff and are like, I mean, not even people like us, but just like anyone who's like, who's oh, that'd be fun yeah. to go get my tea leaves red. You know, like it's a fun, silly little thing. But for us, it's supposed to be serious. we so want. Serious. We don't want to just be
1: entertained. We want the truth. Yeah, and also potentially someone who could do it over Zoom because we might not. We're not always with each other. Um, nor do we have the ability to always do things in person. You know.
0: After Ariel Willow was so spot on about certain things, I was just like, really, I think it, a lot of people could do stuff over Zoom. I think yeah. if you're tapped in, it doesn't necessarily, well, it depends on people's power. I was going to say, I don't think you need to like touch them and be there with them, but yeah. that could not be true at all. What do I know?
1: And it's also- I don't. <laughs> regression is like a hypnosis of sorts. So it depends on your own mm-hmm. mental capacity yeah. via- via via zoom
0: um via
1: zoom, via zoom. you're so pro-
0: proper yeah.
1: me proper um <laughs> i texted you like the most proper text this morning and i was, I took a step back and i like, yeah you used i a was just confused throughout. by myself i said what i had to correct it's myself like there's a
0: period at the end of the sentence sabrina must be mad at me <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, Okay. I have a very long episode and thrilling story to tell you. So I think we should get into it. Okay. In case you didn't know, Corinne, everything is creepy. Yes, everything. Parenting, creepy. Social media, creepy. Pizza. Yeah, (laughs) even that can be creepy. And Lauren Z-Side has built an online career as a content creator on YouTube by playing video games, that may seem normal or even cute on the outside, but are actually super weird, creepy, or even terrifying beneath the surface. Join Lauren and her husband, Bobby, as they turn this concept into a podcast by talking about completely normal, everyday topics that will slowly descend into discussing the dark, weird, or creepy side of it.
0: Oh, I love this. Fans can submit their creepy topics by leaving a voicemail at 929 390 8464 for a chance to be featured on an episode. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts with new episodes every Wednesday, and you can watch on YouTube the following day. You'll never look at everything the same again. Everything is creepy. Okay. I don't even know where to begin.
1: I guess I should start with there a trigger warning because there are themes of suicide in this story, and then less of a trigger warning and more of a disclaimer, this is another episode of uh, Sabrina Loves History. So <laughs> perfect. there is a lot of history in this episode and includes quite a vast recount of world history.
0: We're pretty much a paranormal history podcast. At That's this
1: point. true. I mean, it's important to understand the history to understand the paranormal because without knowing why or who or what occurred, you don't really understand the ghost. Right. We need context. We love context. So this story takes place during World War I. And for people who do not know, World War I took place from 1914 to 1918. It was one of the deadliest global conflicts in history and was fought between two coalitions. One side was France, UK, Russia, Italy, Japan, and the US. And the other side was Germany, Austria, Hungary, and what was the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish. An estimated 9 million soldiers were killed in combat. And many soldiers on both sides were taken as prisoners of war, held in terrible conditions, interrogated for information, and left to wonder what their fate would be. This is where our story begins. In an Ottoman prison camp in Yazgad. It was 1916, conditions were poor, life was bleak, and the prisoners sought ways to pass the time. So a man by the name of Elias Henry Jones had an idea one that was given to him by an aunt who had written a postcard. Jones constructed a Ouija board and together with other prisoners decided to communicate with the other side to find connection beyond their confined walls and seek contact with the outside world. Night after night, Jones and his fellow inmates gathered around the board. They asked the spirit realm if anyone was with them. Occasionally, the planchette, which was constructed of an upside down glass, would move, spelling out gibberish. Slowly, the men grew bored, their faith and hope for outside communication dwindling. So, as each night passed, more and more prisoners opted out of these seances until there were just two men remaining Jones. I just
0: want to know what the guards thought of all of this. <laughs> well, you
1: will find They're shaking out. Shaking
0: in their boots? That is coming soon. I'd be like, fine, you're released from prison. I don't want any of this (laughs) around me.
1: Be gone. Be gone. Well, so this night, it's finally just two men. It's Jones and this other man. And it was this night that they finally made contact with the other side. The planchette moved, spelling out S-A-L-L-Y. Sally. This one name, This one evening, this one connection, began what became the greatest prison escape in history. This is the story of the Confidence Men, Elias Henry Jones and Cedric Waters Hill, two men who escaped the brutal conditions of an Ottoman prisoner of war camp with the use of a Ouija board. It involves magic, conjuring spirits, Ouija boards, treasure, telepathy, two men having themselves tried, convicted, sentenced to solitary confinement, and 500 pounds of butter. 500 pounds of butter? Yes, you'll find out. That's my teaser for you. Um, That's why everyone has to stay here. Some ideas, but I don't think I'm right. (laughs) You're probably not. Let's keep going. (laughs) (laughs) So the question is, were Jones and Hill incredibly powerful mediums, or... Are they incredibly smart master manipulators? The answer shall be revealed. So stay until the end. Actually, I'll find, you'll you'll learn more in the middle because it's important to the story. So before we find out what happens to Jones, Hill, Sally, and the Ouija board, I want to go into some background. And I really need to give a shout out. I don't even know how I stumbled upon this. I really think I was researching for our In Paranormal News, which we do on Patreon, and this somehow came up. And I was blown away because there's nothing on the internet about it except for this one book. And I ended up listening to it. It's from, it's written by Margalit Fox and it's called The Confidence Men. So I found most of my information from this book and I really highly recommend it. It's 10-ish hours or so. um, And this episode has been condensed to 13 pages. So as you can assume, <laughs> there's a very uh, there's a lot of information that's not going to be in this episode. Um, the book actually has transcribed conversations that they had with the spirits on the other side because oh, someone wrote like you know was the the, the scribe basically, so people were writing down what conversations they were having. So cool, yeah. Um, it actually read like fiction a lot of times, and Margaret collected Did you have to look it up to, to make sure it was non fiction? Were yes, you second guessing times. the whole time? Multiple <laughs> times, Corinne. I, it is, this story is so. I mean, as you can tell from like the 500 pounds of butter and all of those little like things, it is just, yeah, it's so elaborate. It just goes in directions that I'm, I don't even understand. They're I can't even imagine putting myself into their shoes and creating what they created. It's that wild.
0: Yeah. I am looking forward to hearing this, especially the butter part, because my mind is <laughs> my mind is churning. No pun intended.
1: <laughs> I die. Wow. Corinne, that was quick. Uh, I'm proud of you. Thanks. Sometimes I, I listen- was going to say it anyway. And then I was like, wait a second, that's a pun. <laughs> Sometimes I listen back to episodes and I get so disappointed that I didn't think of certain puns or jokes <laughs> because my brain sometimes moves so much slower and I have, I need time. I'm like, I'm, I'm a, okay. Once okay, this is a little tangent and I know we don't have time for them today, but <laughs> <laughs> I have 13 pages to get through. <laughs> um, There was one time I was on set and we had a, uh, I was talking to someone and my brain just totally short circuited. And this guy was like, I thought you were a writer. And I was like, Yeah, I'm not a I'm a writer, not a talker. Like they are two very different things.
0: <laughs> they really are. Oh my gosh. I feel the same way because the way that I like any email, the even text, just the way that I communicate on paper or like having a beat to actually put my thoughts down, it's so different than. My spoken word people actually on TikTok. Um, people in the book that I was reading were saying <laughs> that, that Phoebe Bridgers. They were mentioning that Phoebe Bridgers is, is a bit of the same way because her lyrics to her songs will be so poetic and so haunting. And then an interviewer will be like, "How did you like? How did you think of these lyrics?" And she'd be like, "I know, man. Like, it's wild, right?" <laughs> It was yeah, just, you know, super sad. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> I get you. I feel the same. I way. get
1: you too. I think sometimes you just need to sit in solitude with your thoughts, and that's how wonderful writing takes place. Speaking, on the other hand, it's just it's a lot more challenging. It's a lot. You are nice. asking a lot of me, world. <laughs> okay, so yes, the book is called "The Confidence Men." It's an incredible story of pure ingenuity ingenuity, and the strength of spirit, both living and dead. I was proud of that one. Um, (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to start telling you a little bit about Elias Henry Jones, and then um, I will get into C.W. Hill, who's the other uh, very important part of the story. So Elias Henry Jones, known as Harry or Hal, and I'll mostly refer to him as Jones or Elias in this story, was born in Wales on September 21st, 1883. Uh, His father was a knight and was incredibly smart and became one of the most renowned moral philosophers. So Jones followed closely in his father's footsteps and received a really good education. He spent most of his life in Wales and then moved to Scotland with his family in 1891 and later moved to Glasgow. He was fluent in Welsh and many other languages. He graduated from the University of Glasgow, where he had studied psychology, Greek, Latin, mathematics, and history. And then he then went on to get a master's and worked as a magistrate. In early 1900s, his brother and sister both died, and Jones was alone dealing with these tragedies in the jungles of Burma and very sadly became addicted to opium. But, Hmm. In 1908, he recovered and weaned himself off of the opium, and in 1913, at 29 years old, he married his longtime friend, Mare Evans, who, let me tell you, these love letters that are in the book and accessible are just swoony. I'll read one example, but they had known each other since the age of 13, and um One example, this is a letter that Jones wrote to Mayor. I have loved you since we were boy and girl together. I love you even more with every day that passes. This is like just regularly giving
0: someone your vows, right? Basically, this is so beautiful. We don't do this stuff anymore.
1: I know. We should return I'm to more an like, era love of... you. Do you need me
0: to pick up yogurt <laughs> at the grocery store? <laughs>
1: like, I'm gonna return to writing a bunch of love letters. To me? Yeah, to you. Actually, I I bought a card that I found because it reminded me of you and I have to write it and send it to you. Well now I just ruined okay, the surprise. Perfect.
0: Um but it was Well, be I don't know what letter. the card is. That's true. Perfect. I love that.
1: Jones and Mare had their first child in nineteen fourteen and that was the time when the world was thrown into the midst of World War One. Britain was in war against the Ottoman Empire, and so Jones enlisted as a gunner in 1916. He became a member of the forces' Sixth Division in charge of capturing Baghdad. Um, at the time when he joined the military, Mare was pregnant with her second, with their second child, and decided to sail back to Britain with their other child that they had, and. Jones is in the 6th Division. Sir Charles Townsend was the general. And, you know, things were going well for them for quite a while until it wasn't. They were facing terrible conditions, 100-plus degree weather, low food rations, and bugs. Apparently, there were bugs that crawled, bugs that bit and stung, those that flew into mouths, those that invaded their foods. There were mosquitoes, scorpions, bedbugs, lice, just so many bugs. Gross. Okay. And another thing to know about Jones is he was a little bit of a jokester and loved jinx and playing pranks and making a good old making fun out of situations that necessarily weren't very fun. So he would pull pranks often. Um, and that's something important to note as we go on in the story. Mm. Well um, that's healthy. You know,
0: sometimes you need a little bit of a
1: class clown to bring everybody yeah. together. A
0: little camaraderie.
1: Exactly. Sh-
0: some shared negative experiences.
1: Yes, Yes. Uh, some glimmer of hope. By November 28, 1916, the 6th Division division had seen 50% of their forces killed, and they were ordered to retreat. And this is when they realized the siege was inevitable. They were now surrounded by 25,000 Ottoman troops, And they were running out of food. And basically, the Ottomans were like, let's just starve them out. And let's just surround them, shoot at them, and they'll starve eventually. Um, The British troops were now eating the animals in the trenches, horses, mules. 150 to 200 British men were dying daily. The rain was like, the weather was wild. It was either really hot or it was raining. The bugs were rampant. The dead were piling up. There was no relief coming well relief was coming but they were being attacked as they were coming so it was just so far the men started starving and this story is so fluff but i just need to tell it because it it brought so much joy to me and is just a little tidbit that i think will bring joy to this whole story um so during this time before they had been surrounded by the 25,000 troops there were a group of gunners who bought a hen and they had bought it with the intention of eating it for dinner but then they decided to keep her as a pet and they gave her a name mrs milligan so mrs milligan is mrs. Milligan. she a laying a
0: laying hen cuz i'm not sure i mean if you if you get the then you get a lot of meals because you have the eggs
1: i'm going to guess that she wasn't because
0: she was a, a hen of a certain age Yeah, maybe. She was a little older.
1: She was a missus. She Um, was a missus. So Mrs. Milligan was a hen and was like a pet of the the, uh, trenches. And (laughs) a pet of the trenches. And even though these men were starting to starve, the rations were being cut down from a half to a quarter to even less and less and less, like to the point where they were only given one cup of tea and, like, a piece of chocolate and one meal a day. So it was just, you know, they were eating the animals in the trenches, but they wouldn't Mm. eat Mrs. Milligan. So
0: How did they protect Mrs. Milligan? Well, I'm sure there was someone there that was, like, ready to eat her.
1: Yes. So the gunners who had kept her released her and were like, run, Mrs. Milligan, run. (laughs) But Ron Forrest, run, (laughs) but Mrs. Milligan. Mrs. Milligan! (laughs) But what I love is that Mrs. Milligan came back. Like she was like, I love my boys. (gasps) I'm coming back. And then now the Ottomans start dropping bombs. So food was even more scarce. People are dying left and right. And still, they would not eat Mrs. Milligan until they were down (laughs) to emergency rations, and 15 to 20 men were dying daily from starvation. Finally, and tragically, the soldiers ate Mrs. Milligan and found her tough.
0: She trusted them. She ran back to them. They were her safe space. And they ate her. They ate her. (laughs) (laughs) Devastating.
1: (laughs) Poor Mrs. Milligan. Oh, man. Yeah. I feel for her. Finally, on April 29th, 1916, they surrendered and raised the white flag. It was after five months and 33,000 British casualties. So now they all became prisoners of war. Jones and many of his military brothers were marched continuously for 62 days. They marched nearly 2,000 miles on foot across present-day Iraq, Syria, and Turkey, and finally made it to Yozgad in June, on June 30th. Um, Yozgad means 100 Springs and today that camp is referred to as the Alcatraz of the time. I mean, think about how many miles they traverse. They're basically in the middle of nowhere up on a hill. It was so far from civilization. There were no modes of transportation anywhere nearby and these men were watched closely by captors. And before the prisoners of war came to Yozgad, there was a lot of tragedy and traumatic history that happened here, which comes to play later in the story. So, At the very beginning of the war, at the outbreak, Yozgad had been home to a large Armenian population and the Ottomans had murdered almost all of them. Like it was a pretty brutal, yeah. There's just a lot of dark tragedy that had happened there. And this is where Jones and a hundred other British officers were to be held for the rest of the war. Among those British officers was another man named Cedric Waters Hill or C.W. Hill. And now a little bit of background on him. Cedric Waters Hill was born on April 3rd, 1891 on a cattle farm in Queensland, Australia. He became incredibly intrigued by airplanes and in his spare time built a glider. Casual, like making us all feel really. uh, I know. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Here I am trying to pick up crochet
0: and I've done it twice (laughs) in the past six months and he's building a freaking plane basically. (laughs)
1: Uh, in his spare time. Meanwhile, you and I are like going loony, loony bin tunes, just trying to keep up our normal day lives. <laughs> um, oh man, and
0: and some of us here are medicated too. So heavily, yeah. I, I mean,
1: my <laughs> my coffee table is lined with RX pill bottles. <laughs> While in Australia, Hill became enthralled by magic and even studied it. He was very like, in, he just loved the idea that it involved both mechanical and psychological engineering, which are two things that he was really fascinated by. I mean, he built planes and then he, I guess, was really entranced by psychology and human mind and how you can, uh, how, how your um, surroundings very much can change or manipulate your psyche. So Hill started studying the art of conjuring until the war began, and in 1914, when he was 23 years old, he decided to join the war by enlisting in the London Air Corps because Australia didn't have a Air Corps. He was tasked with flying B-82Cs, if anyone knows plane stuff, and he was carrying bombs. So throughout the spring of 1916, Hill was assigned to drop bombs and photograph certain air areas for military to basically map out for attack. Unfortunately, on one endeavor, he was met by an entire Ottoman army. So for 15 minutes straight, they shot at him from the ground, striking his plane, and the damage Jeez. to his plane forced him to make an emergency landing. He landed in the sand in an Arab va- in an Arab village and was immediately fired upon. He hid behind the plane, and apparently he had, like, He decided to blow up the plane because he wanted to keep the engineering of their types of planes a secret. Um, He dug a hole. He was trying to hide. I also think that that's protocol sometimes. Like, I think
0: oftentimes you're required to destroy your situation. Right. (laughs) Yes.
1: I mean, he's alone in the middle of the desert, basically. He was surrounded. There was no way out for him. So he was trying to exchange fire until he ran out of ammunition. And uh, uh, surprisingly, he did not raise the white flag. The other side did, because I think they understood that they could take him in as a prisoner of war and maybe get information out of him. This one particular scene is reminding me so much of Top Gun Maverick, if you watched (laughs) that movie. Yeah.
0: But I'm sure it happens plenty in war. Definitely.
1: And so, okay, this is another interesting thing. Because Hill was, like, very fascinated with uh, conjuring and psychological warfare, almost, he talked his way out of being killed. Um, even though he was interrogated, he um, he didn't give up any real information and um, knew what—it's it, interesting. So Hill and Jones were both very psychologically manipulative men and knew what they were doing and enjoyed doing it, despite the risks. So— when Hill was interrogated, he just made up lies, and the officers believed him.
0: I mean, how, what, what would they know? They don't right, know right? any different, right? Yeah. That's why they're asking. They don't know the answer. Yes. Wow.
1: Smart cookie. Mm-hmm. And then he talked his way out of being killed and uh, became a prisoner of war, which is, you know, better than dying. And he was sent mm. to Yozgad, where he found and met Elias Jones. Uh, The living conditions in Yozgad were pretty poor. They were allotted, basically each person had 42 square feet. The rooms were barren. There were no sanitary arrangements. They were basically two long rooms with a hole in the floor that fell into a pit below the house and was never cleaned. I think that's the bathroom. It wasn't a traditional prison, so there are no like cells or anything. It's just bedrooms with no furniture. They were making mattresses out of old door hinges or out of old door frames and then putting them on uh, like wood sticks, basically. Oh. <laughs> for weeks, they were contained to their houses, not able to leave. And so all they do was sit there, sleep or smoke. And they hardly ate because the Ottomans were also charging them for food and they would increase the prices. With what money? Well, I think they were given a, they were allotted the same allowance that, the Ottoman soldiers were allotted, but then they were charged way more for everything. And when they complained, they were told, well, maybe you should just eat less. So life is not great here. They decided to make their own fun. And again, not necessarily pertinent to the story, but necessary to my life. Um, They invented a game called Posh think riot meets a rugby scram so they were basically they would sit on their victim pinch smack or tickle them until they begged for mercy oh my god
0: they're prisoners of war and yet they're torturing themselves (laughs) and calling it a game oh i would hate that (laughs) game nope hell no i would scream
1: for mercy immediately yes i'm out yeah But I'm sure everyone watching enjoyed it, laughing at that. So there was a lot of laughter all uh, about. They even wrote and put on a holiday musical show called The Fair Maiden of Yozgad. And it made fun of a lot of the uh, the men who were guarding them. So they were just, they were pretty brave, pretty brazen. Yeah, they were just kind of testing their luck a bit. Despite these, you know, creative ways to pass the time, a lot of them did suffer what is called a psychological malady that is now known as barbed wire disease. It's depression, nightmares, hopelessness, crushing, ennui. Then in February, a postcard arrived for Jones and it opened so many doors. A postcard from his aunt that suggested Jones and his comrades experiment with a Ouija board. Jones had never used a Ouija board, but his aunt provided him with all of the details. So he made one. And they used an inverted glass as the planchette. And this is where the story that I shared in the very beginning comes in. Night after night, there was no contact until finally, when it was just Jones and another British military doctor, O'Farrell, finally made contact with Sally. Sassy, saucy Sally who was not afraid of telling the men how much she did not like them and that their dress was unbecoming of men. Oh, wow. Yes. The men became enthralled and entranced. And Jones was not expecting such a reaction when he himself had playfully moved the planchette to spell the name Sally. That's right. He had guided the glass himself and seeing the excitement, he was like, I can't take this away from my friends. And so he continued with the charade.
0: Oh, it was all a ruse. I would have believed it. I would have believed it.
1: I know I had texted you. I was like, I could tell this entire story as if it was a really a full paranormal experience, but it's really hard to do that because I would then have to retell the whole story with what actually happened. And yeah, I'm on page five. Well, and also... This is, this is a really
0: important part of paranormal stories, right? Is that sometimes it's what not we learn is real and sometimes it's not. Yes. And so there's still a bit of, you have to kind of balance the like belief and the investigative parts of you, right? Yes. Which is the same reason why we always say like, we're big fans of people trying to debunk things Mm -hmm. if you can't debunk it or if what you suggest is just really just as implausible as that person and like a skeptic's belief of the paranormal then we don't accept it right like you're just forcing something into place but sometimes lore and myths and legend develop because someone did something along the way right and a ghost
1: story was born and this is also the time of spiritualism. So like the fox sisters, Houdini is they're all operating around this time. And oh, I it's love also they are Houdini. I know. He's basically
0: the reason we now do long episodes. Remember cuz I was yeah, so you, upset that I couldn't
1: do like that's three parts. True.
0: And then like a month later we're like guess what we're changing our format
1: so that we can talk forever despite not knowing how to talk. Mm-hmm. At least we have the ability to write and then read what we wrote. So there's yes. even though half the time I don't even read what I wrote. <laughs> so yes, this is during the time of spiritualism. Also, it's World War One. So many people are, are dying. So many loved ones are desperately trying to find out what is happening to their family members who are in the military. It was just a time of a lot of loss. So there was a lot of desire to believe in the spiritual realm.
0: I understand that, and I feel like honestly, where we are right now, too, I can, I can see that there could be a big increase in that sort of activity again, and those sort of beliefs again, because we're all feeling like we need something, right?
1: Well, we've always, <laughs> you and I have always been team spirits.
0: <laughs> I know, but now the pentagon is too. Yeah. Well, they're team aliens. So yeah. we're close. <laughs> we're close to bringing the whole world with us.
1: I love to pass the time with mobile games. Let's talk about Love and Pies by Trailmix Games. You can download it for free. And it's the perfectly cozy game where you build your very own cafe, combine ingredients and uncover a story of drama and romance.
0: Drama. Amelia has so much drama so in her much. life. And that's who you... That's who you play with. You take over the family cafe. You you do all the design choices. But then as you're working, as you're building this cafe and getting business and getting customers, there's just suddenly an uncle. And then it's like, where's your mom? And then there's so many things that come in and you're like, oh my God, this is... This is so such a good brain break. It's so fun to play. And it's a very cozy game. They aim to create safe, empowering spaces for players of all ages. With each beautiful game they create, they're fostering a culture of trust, respect, and creativity.
1: And there's a new event that's on the horizon. Actually, it's happening right now. The Lake Pass event, where a bizarre flood at an old warehouse in part of town is underwater. And it's up to you to discover how it happened and who may be behind it. But this event only lasts through May 7th. So download Love and Pies to dive into the mystery.
0: For a tasty mix of love and drama, download Love and Pies for free today and check out the Lake Pass event available now through May 7th. That's Love and Pies, free to
1: download in the App Store or Google Play. With that context in mind, I'll continue the story. Uh, Each night, this crowd around the Ouija board and these seances grew larger. And there were some people who started to question Jones and they were like, How can we be sure he's not moving the board and the planchette himself? So they decided to put him to the test. And this is where Jones's ingenuity and smarts comes in. Because even though he was blindfolded, he passed every single test. He was blindfolded. The board was moved in different directions. It was even placed upside down at one point. And Jones... Was blindfolded. So he doesn't know. But he had planned. He basically knew that they had said like, hey, can we put you to, to, through tests to make sure that this is real? Mm-hmm. He had memorized where the letters were on the board just based on feeling. And he had also put notches in the board in certain places in case they had moved it around that he would know where um, certain letters were. Oh, so he made his own little version of Braille. Exactly. Essentially, yeah. So yeah, the spirit was able to communicate no matter what the tests were, um, and they started to call it the spook, which is technically the spirit. And and I think there were a lot of spirits that they spoke to, but there's one that came through the most, and it was referred to as the spook in uh, Elias Jones's book, and then also in the book The Confidence Men. So. I'll refer to it as the spook or the spirit, and I'll clarify if it's a different type of spirit with a different name. So as this was going on, Jones had an incredible idea. He realized that this belief in the spirit could be used to help him escape. In order to continue the ruse and enact his grand escape, Jones had to play it smart. So he started to make sure that the ghosts only came when this man who was a doctor, O'Farrell, was present. They mostly conjured the spirits of saucy Sally and demure Dorothy, who uh, the men preferred Dorothy because she was, um, she didn't challenge them the way that Sally did. (laughs) Wow. She was more flat, like she flattered them a lot more. And then on one April day, the Turkish translator of the Yozgad camp. So this is, someone who's a captor, uh, Louise Eskenazi, and his name is spelled M-O-I-S-E, but it it was pronounced Louise, I think, um, based on what I heard in the book. And the British nicknamed him the Pimple. So I will call him that moving forward. And I'm just going to say- What a horrible nickname. It's most likely not an endearing name. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So this man, he approaches Jones and he's like, you know, a very like discreet, hush, hush. He says, is it true, Jones, that you are a student of the spiritual? And Jones is like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I needed for my plan. So he says, He is a student of the spiritualism. And the pimple revealed that he wanted to communicate with the other side. Apparently, he had a lot of questions about a future lover. And things continued when Jones decided to claim that he was receiving telepathic communications that divulged vital war ongoings. So he started posting bulletins in the camp saying that he received telepathic communications of things that had happened in the war. So it like further enforce this ability, this belief that he had the ability to communicate with the other side and was very spiritually powerful. Oh my gosh.
0: Here are all these men thinking that they're just engaging in a physical war. And then this one prisoner of war is actually turning it into psychological (laughs) warfare with everyone that's in this (laughs) camp. Yeah. He did what he needed
1: to to survive and he truly like uh, this i mean this is the whole thing so many things had to happen in the exact correct way so many so many things depended on chance and luck mm-hmm. and i mean it's just like i said sometimes just felt like a fictional story um he so and then again adding to the smarts, these messages or these the news of what was going on in the war which is something he could it possibly have known because they weren't receiving any, you know, communications from people in the war, but they were able to communicate with family members. And so he and his family developed a code, a coded message. So they would send letters that had news from the war, but it was coded. And so he had the cipher and he would decode it and then post the news of the war, on bulletins. oh I mean I have more questions which is like how how
0: did he set that up because I'm assuming that they saw all outgoing messages well his
1: outgoing messages had codes too so
0: they had to crack the code there wasn't or was there a pre-existing code that his family no was there was no used?
1: there was not a pre-existing code I think he had sent a pretty cryptic message and so his family must would have read it and been like, there's something else in this. Um, there is a, there is a larger portion. I mean, not that large, but there is more detail about this in the book that perhaps goes into detail about it. But there are specific examples about um, what codes they used. I
0: feel like I ruined my chances now of if I were in this situation of you being able to seriously help me because I sent you that postcard where I, I had to used webdings. And now, so I feel like if I ever really needed you to do something, you would just be like, oh, it's just a silly little message in webdings.
1: Well, no, I would decode it right away.
0: Yeah. But would you end there thinking that it's just the message wasn't anything. It was just kind of like fluff. The purpose was to basically for the fun of the webdings.
1: Well, it depends on what the webdings translates to. I know I got to work on my message, I guess. All right. We'll come
0: up with a code. Okay. Uncrackable on Word document.
1: (laughs) It's also around this time that when they're in the Yozgad camp, they start to hear gunshots and prolonged fire. It was just one evening and they were scared that this meant like the war, the fighting was coming towards them, but it wasn't. It was due to an eclipse of the moon because the townspeople believed that this was a spiritual demonic event. So they were shooting to scare away the devil who was, they believe, stealing their light. Which informed Jones that this belief in the supernatural was widespread. And then he had the idea and, well, curiosity. If perhaps this belief in the supernatural extended to even the highest officials at the camp, perhaps the commandant, who was basically in charge of everything, At this time, much of the camp is catching ghost fever. Seances and conjuring of spirits was happening daily, every night. It was other people in in the camp were trying to hold seances as well. It just, everyone's like, ghosts, this, ghosts that, paranormal this. And then in September of 1917, the plan really started to form. Jones teamed up with Cedric Waters Hill. And the timing is a little bit unclear of how everything played out. But I'll tell the story as it made sense to me as I was listening to the book and doing my research. So, Jones constructed the most thorough and detailed plot, but he needed an accomplice. He chose C.W. Hill because he had longed to escape just as Jones had. Jones was clever, where Hill was a student of magic and sleight of hand. Together, they were a formidable team. Hill had knowledge of codes and strategy. He possessed qualities that would make him an invaluable collaborator. He was good with his hands. He could conjure. He could drive any form of vehicle, and was incredibly patient, courageous, and loyal. And there's a quote: "He was loyal like the sea." That's what Jones had written about Hill. They they were they had a bromance. Such a bromance. Yeah. Also, it's an interesting way to
0: describe. That because I feel like the sea is actually pretty untrustworthy and tumultuous <laughs> and scary, and <laughs> if you turn your back on it for a second, it can kill you.
1: Yeah, I don't know necessarily what what the uh, connection was, but maybe it's because you, uh, I don't know, that the sea can get you place to place. I don't know. Anyway, the these two men stayed friends until their death like they they truly depended on one another so through nice. this time and they so were they both
0: survived
1: yes hopefully i mean it's the greatest okay. escape but there were a lot of times where things got really really bleak in this escape attempt and jones recalled that he wouldn't have made it through had Hill not be been there with him <laughs> yeah and vice versa The two partnered up and they knew that every good con starts with a story and every good con man has multiple escape plans, like a second backup, like backups to their backups to their backups. There was a legend going around camp at this time that an Armenian man who had been killed at the beginning of the war prior to being killed was very fearful of the Ottomans so he buried his wealth in the town of Yozgad before the Turks invaded. This rumor and legend spread around the camp and perhaps maybe encouraged by Jones, but it was popular enough that the pimple covertly approached Jones once more and in a hushed voice, he asked, can the spook find a buried treasure? Jones looks at the man and says, it depends. Jones starts to build this narrative a bit. He starts asking some questions and he's very careful about how he does this. Like he wants things to be Mm -hmm. other people's ideas. So Mm -hmm. he asks the pimple if he was referring to the buried treasure because Jones said he had spoken to the spook, the spirits, about it a little bit. And he watched as the pimple's eyes lit up with excitement. He said that he, well, actually he said that we which Jones made note of, we, the word we, um, had dug in the garden trying to locate it. So then he realized, Jones realized, the pimple was not alone in his quest, which meant perhaps that the commandant was involved because if the captors and the guards are openly digging for buried treasure, there's probably a good chance that the leader of all of them is aware. Mm Mm-hmm. And if he could get the commandant involved, that could really help with his plan. So Jones tells the pimple that he will ask the spook about the treasure. And he would do so if he could get certain permissions to move around the camp at night. Then, again, this is just like so many things. Okay, so previous to this, there was a revolver that was found by a prisoner just on the grounds, And he decided that he could use this revolver as a part of the treasure, so to speak. So he decided that the ghost would discover it and lead them to this revolver. And um, as like an inclination that the spook could really find the real treasure.
0: Oh, brilliant. But this is, again, you said like, it's a series of fortunate events in an unfortunate situation. Yes. You know, like if, if he hadn't found that, what... What other clue would he, what other path would he have
1: chosen and would that have worked? I do not know. Well, you're, you're, this is like only the beginning. We're, we're going to go on a wild ride and you're, I, I am very much like, how did they get here? So I imagine you're going to find some confusion as well, Okay, but also amazement and what, like wonder. So they have a seance and on this night, the conversation with the spirit, very ominously, the spirit said, the treasure <laughs> is guarded by arms. And this is important. So every time Jones and the others spoke with the spirit, they were sent into this like trance like state. And when they came out of the trance, they would be like, I, what happened? Like, not like I don't have any memory. So this is a ruse that they really had to keep up every time. They had to pretend that once the spirit came through them and they came back, that they had no memory of what had happened. So the pimple took copious notes, which is why there's um, records of and transcripts of what happened. Jones, via the spirit, said that the treasure hunters were to find the arms before the spirit could give another clue. The spirit insisted that the pimple must bring a companion because Jones was hoping that he would bring the commandant. And then this, again, like I told you that Jones is was a bit of a prankster. So, He's Mm -hmm. got this great grand escape plan going on, but he's also like, you know what? In case the escape doesn't work out, I'm also just going to have a little bit of fun with this. And he starts teasing the captors and he basically has the spirit give these obscure requests and makes the pimple and the companion that he brings like wear funny things and have strange um, tools with them just to like kind of make fun of
0: them. Oh, wow.
1: So how many people are in on this thing? Only really two people are in on the escape. And a lot of people believe that Jones is actually communicating with spirits. And I mean, a big part of this was Jones like, Jones is like, if I want this to work, I can't include anyone else because yeah, that risks. So people talking about it and it being found out. Okay. That makes sense.
0: So really they were just doing making the guards do these sort of silly acts for their own enjoyment it wasn't necessarily to entertain the entire
1: prison there were okay so then there were certain things in this that that Jones was like i'm going to make them do this as a joke so like cuz someone else had found the revolver so he had asked this prisoner he's like hey can i steal that revolver it's going to be hilarious we're going to make these Guys do X, Y, Z thing.
0: Oh, okay. So he was still keeping everybody's belief in spook, but also sometimes being like, oh, well, I'll just pretend spook did this because it's a funny joke. Ha, ha, ha.
1: Yeah, exactly. Got it. On September 12th, the pimple brought the cook, sadly not the commandant, and they came to the arranged location. While there, Jones fell into a dramatic trance, presenting as if taken over by the spirit, and started giving commands to the two men. He yelled, South! And Jones in a trance ran in that direction, reaching a nearby field. And then he plopped on the floor, sat among the cabbages as the others chased after him. He was putting on the performance of a lifetime. He cried out, What has happened? Where am I? And then (laughs) he jumped up onto his feet and yelled, West! And he ran off into that direction. The men followed to the spot where the revolver was buried. Jones looked wide-eyed, Something is here. I feel it. The prisoners watched as the two men, the prisoner, or the the pimple and the cook, dug for the revolver. And as it was pulled from the earth, Jones swooned and fainted and fell to the ground. He was so committed to it that even he truly fell and hit his head on a rock. Like, and he bled. Yeah.
0: Oh, my gosh. I mean, that convinces everyone even more, right? Because why would you inflict pain on yourself? On yourself.
1: Yeah. He was taken to his bed and then later Jones came to and saw that the men had dug a massive hole where they had found the revolver because these two men were like, oh, if the revolver's here, maybe there's treasure buried below here. Um, and Jones looks at them pretending again that he has no memory of what had happened when they were looking for the revolver. And he goes, what happened? Did we find anything? The pimple is in awe and he tells like, you know, retells everything to Jones. He just so deeply believes in everything that's happening. And Jones panics and he's like amping up the ruse. He's he's like, the spook said to do nothing more. What if you have angered the spirit? And so the ruse continues. Jones thought that this event would lure the commandant, but it did not because he truly believed that the pimple was looking for the treasure not really only for himself, but for the commandant as well. That, like, they all were in on it to split the the buried treasure. Hmm. So for months, he was trying different things to try to get the commandant to join in the seances, but he wouldn't. So then, he decided he would make the spirit turn angry. So one night at a seance, when the pimple was there, the spook came through Jones. So Jones via the spirit, or the spirit via Jones, said, I am angry. And it told the pimple that that it would say nothing about the treasure. No matter how many times he apologized, he had angered him. And then the spook said, tonight you will die. The pimple was horrified, begging, begging the spirit, no, please, no. That night, Jones slipped a large amount of I think it was chamomile but basically it was a very strong laxative in the pimple's tea. So that evening when the pimple awoke to horrific diarrhea he believed that he was close to death and he believed that it was the spirit. And one question I have because there's a lot of different parts of the story that involve Jones and Hill having access to certain drugs and medicine and I don't necessarily know how they got that. I don't know. I don't have the answer, Um, but he did. And so this only furthers the pimple's belief that the treasure existed, which is exactly what Jones and Hill wanted. So as they continue these antics, Jones and Hill start, start establishing a mind reading and telepathic act by developing a very intricate code that only they could decipher. And it was a verbal code. So Basically, Hill could uh, blindfold Jones and just based on the way that he speaks, Jones would know what was happening beyond the blindfold or like they did the the trick that was, you know, someone would hold an object and while Jones was blindfolded, he had to guess what the object was. And so Hill would guide him through a conversation that seemed so Mm. benign and not, not related to that at all in order to give him the answer. Um, Jones continued to manipulate the pimple. And there is a lot of references in the book about cult leaders and how these two men were just so convincing and had taken the current situation and used it to their benefit and just made everyone pretty much bow down at their feet. Like it was very smart, it was very wow. calculated, it was very manipulative, yeah. and it worked. They had everyone wrapped around their fingers, and they could see that this desire for the treasure and the belief in spirits was so real for all of these men that they could use them for their benefit. Again, the commandant still has not come and joined this treasure hunt. So Jones is like, I'm just gonna, I just I'm gonna try one more thing. He told the pimple, a story. He said that he has only ever seen the spirit act violently once. And he tells him this story of how the spook was really good in helping people find lost items until there was one man who asked the spirit to locate a lost diamond necklace for a friend. But the spirit became very violent because he was upset that the man would not disclose the name of this woman friend that he was trying to locate the necklace for. And it was because this lady wanted to, she was in a very high social position and she did not want to be made fun of for communicating with the spirit. So he's basically telling and formulating this story to imply that the commandant needs to reveal that he is involved in order for the treasure to be discovered. I mean, it's like, wow. And this is all based on conjecture. He truly doesn't know for certain that the commandant is behind this, but he is assuming. That is such a risky move, but holy
0: crap, what a mastermind.
1: Yeah. And he, so he tells the pimple, he was like, the spirit was, you know, their their feelings was hurt. But once the lady allowed her name to be mentioned, they found the necklace at once. So it worked. What a brilliant man Jones, is, Jones was just a few days later, Jones was called to the commandant's office. This was after a year and a half of being in Yozgad prison and trying to formulate and enact this escape plan.
0: Oh, I mean, that's even more, I I would suspect things even less, right? Because the stamina, like just the amount of time dedicated to this, you wouldn't think like, oh, he's calculating or he's just fooling us, because you would think that after a couple months, this guy would probably
1: show his hand or whatever. Right? Or give up and be like, you know what? It's not worth it. It's not working. Yeah. Or find, you know, a different option or try something else. But no, he just committed to this and was, I'm going to see it through to the the end. And it's starting to work. The Commandant did indeed want the treasure. And Jones is like, this first and most important and crucial part of the plan finally has been achieved. So together, Hill and Jones concocted the rest of the plan with multiple fail-safes just in case. The escape required deception. They needed props, costumes, a well-rehearsed script, and keen psychological awareness. So step one was to get Hill approved as his partner, because they had been doing a lot of the scheming behind the scenes, but right now, Jones was kind of primarily the one involved, and the commandant had not approved anyone else to be involved. Mm -hmm. But The whole plan is crucial and dependent on the two of them in this together. Step two was to secure time alone so that they could plot and plan without anyone else finding out. Step three was to reinforce the Turk's commitment to the treasure hunt. So all of these problems were addressed when Hill convinced the camp that he was an expert mind reader and was seeking one pupil to teach these abilities to He chose Jones because Jones was already connected to the spiritual realm. And this is, again, all part of the ruse. Jones was too fast for three days, which he did publicly. Like, he didn't eat any of the ration food, but then he would go to Hill's room late at night and just gorge. Um, By (laughs) the end of this fast, Jones suddenly and miraculously had the ability to read minds. And so this is the, the whole code that Jones and Hill had been spending months preparing even before the commandant was in on this. So like they are just doing so many different things all at once and planning ahead. And I mean, it's it's very, very, the the commitment level is uh, very respect. I I respect it. So the two men start holding seances together and the commandant is just like, yep, hills in, I got it. You two are, you need it. So then they start to tell the story of the hidden treasure. And this is the story as told by the spirit, as in Jones and Hill constructed. At the start of the war, a certain rich Armenian who lived in Yozgad was fearful of the Turks. He converted his wealth into gold and buried it in an undisclosed location. He told no one of its location, not even his family, should they be tortured for information. Instead, he wrote down 3 clues that would reveal the treasure. The first clue had the compass direction. The second clue had the distance to measure. And the third clue had the spot from which to measure. The man sealed each clue in a metal container, added one gold coin and separated added one gold coin in each metal container and buried these 3 clues in 3 separate places. He then chose three friends that he believed would survive the war and gave each of them one clue. No one had all three. He basically said this, the story is that the man told these friends each one clue and that they were to, after the war, come together, dig up their individual clues, and find the treasure to then provide for his family. Unfortunately, according to the spirit, Not only had the Armenian died, but two of the three friends had died as well. The third friend had unearthed his clue, but without the others, there was no purpose. It was hopeless. Except here comes in, except here's where Jones and Hill comes in. Jones could communicate with the other side. They could conjure the two dead friends, learn of their clues, dig them up, with their captors as chaperones, of course, traverse the country, find the third friend, and together find the treasure for the Turks to share. And Jones and Hill, they're like, "We're you know what, we're doing this just for you. We are going to use our powers, our ability to help you. We don't want any cut. We we have no financial uh, interest in this endeavor. We just want to help you. Wow. So they tell this story. Everyone believes that The commandant is like, These men are the real deal. They're going to help us find this treasure. That is so... (laughs) The spirit told them, I think, the treasure was $25,000 at the time, which I think equals almost $2 million in today's money. So it was a a big prize or potential Very enticing. Yes. Yeah. And now to move their plot further, Hill and Jones used the spirit to their advantage. So basically, they, you know, they're pretending they're in this trance that they don't have any memory of what the spirit is saying when they're in these seances and trances. So they're using these opportunities to have the spirit make requests for Jones and for Hill, basically saying like, they need to be confined alone and they need XYZ tools to help communicate with the spirits. And, and Jones also, what I really appreciate about this is I mean, throughout this whole story, Joan and his whole time in the military, Jones really, really cares about the well-being of his fellow prisoners and fellow British mm-hmm. military officers. So he even uses the spirit to ask for more resources and um, privileges for the prisoners. That's so nice. I'm glad
0: that it wasn't just tunnel vision of using this only for his own escape.
1: No. This is another thing that I found interesting because um, while this was known as the Alcatraz of World War I, the the prisoners also um, went skiing. Like, they, they pulled up, like, what? Uh, yeah, they pulled up, and this is important because there's a, a thing that will come up. but they would pull up planks of wood from the houses and make skis out of them. And occasionally, the uh, the captors would allow them to, like, ski up and down the hill. That That is, I mean, I'm glad they got
0: to do that. I <laughs> mean, But it just, it just, like, doesn't really, the way I'm picturing it, it just, like, doesn't really match with what I thought right. that they would be doing. I mean, this whole story. <laughs> what they would have to do. It's just wild that that was. That was accessible to them. Yeah. And the, all these other things were accessible to them, too. Like, the point that you brought up already is, like, they just had all of these materials. They had access yeah. to all of these things because of the spirit. And unless they had everybody in their pocket with the spirit, which, yes, I guess they they did. Yeah, because I guess, like, if you think about the chamomile, maybe they had an in with the person who worked in the kitchen, you know? Like, oh, we're going to pull a prank and say it was the spirit or... The spirit says it needs this. You have to give it an offering.
1: So despite having the um, spirit ask for certain things, they Hill and Jones weren't able to fully be alone. And they really needed to be alone by themselves in order to plan all of these things. Like there were certain times where they were like, oh, like we'll put you in this room, but it was near near others and it just wasn't enough. So together they decided to have themselves arrested for espionage. They confessed to using telepathy to communicate messages for and of war efforts. I, I don't fully understand this, but somehow they were convicted and through manipulation and spiritual intervention, convinced their guards to put them in solitary confinement. Um, and, and, they would come out of these trances and they'd be horrified. They'd be like, "No, we don't want to go in solitary confinement. This is not what we want." Um, which is funny because they did want to do it. Yeah, they're just a- amazing actors as well, incredible. And apparently, uh, in because jo- Jones wrote a memoir about all this, he said that mm-hmm. he and Hill, when they ha- they needed the solitary confinement, also because they would just in practicing this, there were so many times where they would just laugh. And laugh and laugh and laugh. So they had to like (laughs) continuously practice it so that they wouldn't laugh when they were doing it in front of everyone.
0: Yeah. Oh, how scary. Because, oh, I mean, I wonder what they would have. I think they could have, knowing that they had everyone believing in the spirit. If one of them did laugh, I bet they could just blame some sort of possession. Right. You know, even if they broke character, like they still had so many options to fall back on. They can do
1: a lot of things. Yeah. So Hill and Jones become probably the only people ever to be convicted of using telepathy for espionage. And they were prepped. They basically were like, this is going to work. Everything else has been working. We're going to be put into solitary confinement. So with that belief, they set up the treasure hunt before going into solitary confinement. Hill prepared the grounds for the treasure hunt weeks before this arrest. He constructed two small tin cans with papers that contained the clues along with one piece of gold and a little bit of ash, like dust. Mm -hmm. And this is based on the story that they had told all the spirits. And of course, there was no third can because as the story went, it had already been dug up. So during their first winter, when the skis, the skiing had happened, Hill would go on these trips and he used them to bury the tin cans. They then go into solitary confinement and Hill and Jones start to speak in sync. So the pimple believe that their minds had become one through this like work together with the spirit. And the spirit comes through and tells the the Turks that the spirit would only divulge the treasure hunt piece by piece. So one clue at a time. And then a new spirit came through, a man called O-O-O, this man was apparently the spirit of the Armenian man who buried the treasure.
0: In my brain, when you said "oh oh oh," I was like "ooh." Is the name like the way you pronounce it?
1: Yeah, I don't know how they came up with that name, but maybe perhaps <laughs> because I didn't know his name, they were like, "Let's just come up with like, I don't know, code names." Yeah, that whatever it was, it worked. So in March nineteen, in March nineteen eighteen, for four hours the spirit starts to unfold the story, tells where, you know, how he hit everything. Um, The the value was, it was actually 28,000 pounds. And they introduced trance talk. So basically they convinced the captors that they didn't need the Ouija board to communicate with the spirits. The spirits could come through them and put them in a trance and basically possess their bodies. Um, There was the first time that that they did this, they had established like this whole routine. So basically as it happened, Hill and Jones like eyes rolled back to their heads. They began to grunt and the grunt slowly turned into groans and the groans slowly turned into letters and words. And then they told this story of the future and they concocted, concocted a whole new story that basically narrated a man that looks like the pimple finding with, along with other people like going through this house and reading a clue and finding and digging and pulling boxes out of a hole and finding all the gold. So, you know, the pimple's like in awe and they slip out of the trance. And as they slip out, they kind of do the reverse of what they started with. So they slip from words to groans to grunts. And then they play along with the ruse because remember that they don't remember anything when the trance has happened. So Hill like looks around disappointed when he comes out, he's like, I guess nothing's going to happen. And the pimple's like, no, so much has happened. It did work brilliant. Everything they do.
0: I'm just blown away by this. This is so much planning. It's so
1: much. It's so much. And I'm like, like, couldn't they have skipped a bunch of these steps and gone further, like gone to the, the end? But I guess we weren't there. So what do I know? Basically, the spirit makes many requests, including allowing Hill and Jones to have access to certain tools and weapons And on March 31st, 1918, the spirit guided the men to a local graveyard and followed the spirit to find the first clue. They, Hill and Jones basically through the trance, took them to a spot, the spot where Hill had buried the first clue. And they built a fire around this spot where Jones in his trance performed a ritual, chanting loudly, dancing around the fire. And then pointing to a stone and yelling, the stone! And the men dug up by the stone and found the first clue. Days later, uh. they did the same thing with the second clue. And all that was left was the third clue, which was out in the world and the key to escaping.
0: This whole time that you were talking about him doing this whole like ritual and the this, this stone, I picture Betty White in the proposal to the window. That's funny. To the, to the wall. <laughs> it's yeah, basically. Um, yeah, but it. I mean, it's it's
1: hypnotizing, right? Very. Can't look away. You can't. It is the uh, the performance of a lifetime. So then, okay, this is where things get really confusing to me, and I don't really understand what, like, what the reasoning or how it got to this point. So basically. They, they tried to make up this whole thing of, like, the third clue was out in the world somewhere. They tried to get the Commandant to allow them to go off outside of Yozgad with, with them as chaperones. Um, but apparently there was resistance. I'm not really sure. So Jones and Hill had to revert to a failsafe in which they were like, if we simulate insanity perhaps we can be brought to there was a psychiatric facility in constantinople and i think they had heard that those had who had become mentally insane were then sent back to their home country so again logistics here get a little bit confusing because they were leading the men on the treasure hunt but also trying to be admitted to a psychiatric ward so i'm not i again it's a little bit confusing i'm assuming plan a was to lead them to the treasure And then something happened and so they had to go to plan B. But disaster struck because, and maybe this is why plan A didn't work, but like I said, no one else in the camp knows of their plan to escape. So a friend of Jones gets really concerned and he hears that Jones and Hill are going to go out of camp to find the third clue. And he gets so concerned that he goes to the commandant and says, no, 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 like the men are too weak. He So he basically is concerned that Jones and Hill are going to get executed once they find the treasure.
0: Oh, so, so he didn't he didn't know what was going on. No, so he, he had no just... idea. And he was concerned
1: for his oh, friend. So, oh, that makes my heart oh, I know. hurt. And so he was like, they're too weak because, I mean, they were basically starving themselves to, as a part of the ruse to be like, oh, the spirit doesn't allow us to eat and it's taking over us. So Drones and Hill turned to plan B, which was to be taken to the psychiatric facility. Their plan was to go insane, and the Dr. O'Farrell, who was a British uh, doctor in the war, shared different psychiatric illnesses for them to take on. Jones was to develop partial paralysis with dementia and delusions, and Hill was to come down with acute religious melancholia. They started writing wild, paranoid letters to Turkish rulers to steal their insanity diagnosis, they claimed that they were being poisoned, and the food was being poisoned, and someone was trying to kill them. Um, they tried to convince the commandant to certify them crazy and send them to Constantinople. Um, and then, once that happened, all they needed to do was convince the doctors in the ward in Constantinople that they were da- that they were mentally insane, and then send them back to Britain. So, on April twenty fourth of nineteen eighteen, they held their very last séance in Yozgad. And the spirit demanded that the commandant give the British prisoners of war, give give the British POWs prisoners of war more freedoms. So this was like the last thing before Hill and Jones left. They were like, before we leave, let's make sure we give all of our our brothers some some better life access or better freedoms things. What? Um the spirit also told the pimple i mean the, the poor pimple like truly one his nickname the poor pimple the poor pimple truly the nickname and he believed in this so deeply and hill and jones are truly just basically making a fool out of the man because at the at the last séance the spirit comes through and tells Yozgad tells the pimple that his skills were being wasted at Yozgad, that he had the potential to rule the entire world. And he should, he has so much more to give than just being the translator at Yozgad. And he believes it. Like, you know, like this man is like, you're right. I I do, I do deserve better. I can help. And so he, (laughs) yeah. So then, um, that's so sweet. They're all getting a little pep
0: talk from the spirit.
1: Yes. You can do anything. You can be anything. You can be anything. Um, Hill and Jones act insane and had to keep this up day and night in order to appear actually mad. Like they are so invested. They're method actors at this point. They're fully embracing this ruse. And... Again, I it's hard cuz I'm like I don't really know who is in on what and how the how this relates to the treasure because the commandant and the pimple and these people are still very much believing in the treasure hunt, but I think there was an element of like, oh, these two men are going crazy. Maybe we send them to a psychiatric ward to get help so that they are better and then can help us find the treasure. I believe that that's mm-hmm. what it was. Um so they take off to Constantinople and had requested very strange supplies. Um, one of the strange supplies being 500 pounds of butter. Um, <laughs> again, I do not know why. I think, I don't know, maybe it was like to sell along the way and make money. Um, this except- is reminding me of
0: Brochy State pen- Penitentiary when the that one criminal that escaped folded himself into a box and wrote, what was it? It was like 96 pounds of Beef. meat. Yeah, that's how much you weighed. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, kind of what I thought this was going to be when you first were talking about it. I was like, oh, butter. Like they're just going to pretend to. They're. I thought they were going to squish themselves into like a 400 pound <laughs> vat of butter. Oh, butter. And I just don't know. like slip themselves out once they're all buttered
1: up. Yeah, I really. I, I think it was just kind of a buzzword and I still don't understand the place it has in this story, but <laughs> it's, it's here they, that they are, they're heading to Constantinople <laughs> with 500 pounds of butter. Um, and this is a long journey. So during the, the journey, Jones and Hill continue to be taken over by the spirit. And then when they're not taken over by the spirit, they are acting, you know, crazed and, and manic and like they've lost their minds. And apparently it was really, really hard to be diagnosed mentally insane. So they were like, we have to do something. We have to do something that's even more extreme. We have to make it look like the spirit is trying to kill us. So they stop at a hotel um, along the journey. Apparently, they stopped at one hotel that didn't have what they needed. So they became possessed by the spirit. And the spirit was like, I am unhappy with these accommodations. And they moved to a different hotel. Yeah. Whoa. This is how the much power the spirit has. Yeah. And so <laughs> during this seance, the spirit tells the men, the, the captors, the Turks to leave the room. And when they, but to return within a certain amount of time or when they hear a a cue. And so while the men leave the room, Jones and Hill grab rope that they had had the spirit ask for before they left Yozgad. And they, trigger warning, they truly go through the action of hanging themselves. They tie the ropes. They put them around their necks, They step off the table, which they had practiced this Many times in their solitary confinement, just to understand the pain. And they were like holding on to the rope to, to have less pressure. But they experienced all this. Had the captors not come back in on time on, in the queue, like they 100% would have died. So they step off the table. Luckily, the captors come running in on queue and take the men down. The men come to and, and are horrified. And the captors realize the spirit is trying to take over and kill these men. So again, giving some validity to this insanity plea. Wow, I'm just
0: I'm just blown away. I like I have no, what do I even say about right? this whole thing? I'm just blown away.
1: I it's almost it it almost is unbelievable. Yeah. As I was yes. researching, I was like, how?
0: <laughs> how? It's one of those things where, like, if you watched it in a movie, you'd be like, wow, they really tried to add way too many details Yeah, like, they didn't need all of this,
1: but I guess (laughs) they did. May 1st, they arrived in Angora and got on a train to Constantinople. They loaded their tiny third-class compartment with all the luggage, an immense bag of flour, and what the two men, Jones and Hill, called the BBB, the bloody box of butter. (laughs) They arrived at the psychiatric ward in Constantinople and they expected to be there, like, you know, feigning madness for maybe six weeks because they had to be under constant surveillance. So they were like, okay, we can convince them in a matter of six weeks, but they ended up being there for six months and it very nearly killed them and very nearly actually drove them mad. They... The doctors there, basically, I think they were used to people trying to con their way into these insanity pleas and and diagnoses. So they would try to trick them. They would watch them like hawks and see if they broke. And so for six months, Jones and Hill truly had to be on consistently. They were tested. I mean, keep in mind, this is a time where like psychological care was very, very on the border of torture, if not torture. They were injected with shots. They were interrogated. They were, you know, abused physically and mentally. They were interrogated together. They were interrogated separately. And I mean, there was point- another thing, the The brain is so incredibly powerful
0: that for that amount of time to convince themselves that they were experiencing something, I'm surprised that they would be able to come out of that because who's to say their brain wouldn't just fully take over and be like, this is my reality now. And all of the things that they were once faking is now real.
1: I mean, they nearly did. Six months of that. Plus all the time that they had been doing this ruse before that. It's almost two and a half years. But after six months, after Jones was on the verge of confessing, And if it weren't for Hill, he says that he would have confessed, but because they had gone through this together and they had each other, he stuck with it. They finally convinced the doctors that they were truly insane and finally fooled the doctors to send them home. Um, Apparently, Hill went home first and then Jones followed shortly thereafter and they reconnected when they both were in Britain. And... This the, the wild part is this whole concoction, this whole plan, this whole escape took two and a half years. And they were finally released and sent back just a few months before all of their brother officers were released from Yozgat because Oh of the end of God. War.
0: But apparently See, they but were... you don't know that going in. Like yeah. you don't know if you're gonna
1: be killed, if you're gonna be kept forever. You have to do something. And there were, sadly, some men at the Yozgad camp who did die, and I'm not necessarily sure of what causes, but so had they stayed, there could have been a chance that they died as well. Jones and Hill remained friends. Jones wrote a memoir called The Road to Endor, which was made into a film by Neil Neil Gaiman in 2008. Jones... Um, sadly did start to develop dementia and Hill went to visit him and basically it was like, they spent like four hours together and Hill decided he was not, they, they both decided that they would never see each other again because they wanted to remember one another as they were in this like great plan of escaping. (laughs) Um, Jones (laughs) died. I know Jones passed away in 1942. I think he was like 57 years old, and uh, Hill lived until 1975. The best part of this story, well, there's so much, so many good parts, and this is also <laughs> kind of kind of sad, is that the pimple and all of the captors, all the Turks that were at the camp, still believed in the treasure. They would. The pimple specifically would write letters to Jones after the war, and say, "Like, oh my god, we're we're ready to look for it. Like, can you communicate with the spirit again? Can you help us find it? We've all gone to Constantinople to try to find it." And Jones was like, "Did he ever tell them, or I, did he just let it become their own lore?" I think he let it. I mean, why would why would he have any desire to continue? Like, he uh, didn't continue to communicate with the pimple. Um, And and I do feel like it's important to note that there, J- Jones was a bit anti-Semitic, and in his memoir does like talk poorly on the pimple because he was Jewish. Like he's not very nice to him. So there's just a lot of negative energy between the two men. But I have no idea what happened to the pimple. I think he still also believed that he had this higher ability and could rule the world, and he had the potential and he wanted the spirit to help guide him to it. So there was no treasure, but these two men, Jones and Hill, escaped with the use of a Ouija board with the spiritual realms assistance, whether or not, well, despite the fact that they were putting on what might be the greatest con I've ever heard of.
0: This, I mean, again, I have no words <laughs> because this is just so wild. I know. And it's just like, I'm thinking of so many different movies. And if you combined like 10 movies into one, it, it would be this story. But this needs to be, I want this to be a movie. It should be like a, well, well. I don't know if it could be a movie. It should I be like a a five season
1: television show. <laughs> I agree. Well, I, I haven't seen the Road to, Road to Endor movie by Neil Gaiman. Why do I say it like that? Neil Gaiman? I don't know. Oh, it's a movie. So we can watch it. Oh, it is?
0: Yeah. Maybe I'll download it for my flight. Because I'm very curious now. Yeah. This is just so interesting. I want to see a picture of these guys.
1: Um, There we'll are pictures. i have to find one. There, yeah, we'll there put are... one in the... Well, we should put one in the YouTube video. Yeah, I mean... <sighs>
0: I don't know. I don't know what to say. The (laughs) whole thing is, I'm just lost for words. I know. And I think if I were in their same position, I don't know that I would be as smart and conniving (laughs) as they were. (laughs) I mean, even too, like you talked about luck, but at the same time, there were things that didn't go to plan and they were just so quick thinking And knew the people that they were manipulating so well at that point that they could pivot to entirely different plans. And all while not telling any of their their other friends, like that would be the hardest part, I think, is only having each other to confide in and not telling all of your other friends, especially when some of them are concerned for you, right? Concerned for your safety and you just want to reassure them. But that is a huge risk to your own safety and your whole future.
1: It's a your massive one comment risk. Could kill you. Yeah. Yeah. But they made it out. They and made like, it. Kind of agreeing with you. We're definitely agreeing with you, where it's just there's so many wild turns in this story that don't make sense to me. But Clearly, these men are incredibly smart to, to convince an entire camp that mm-hmm. they were communicating with the spirit world, to convince their captors that there was a treasure. And, and they, used, they used what was already given to them. Like this rumor of the legend already existed. And so they built off of that. They, the idea of spiritualism existed. Yeah. So they, they used that to their advantage. And it's just, man... I don't have that ability. I'm curious about,
0: (laughs) maybe you do. No. (laughs) I'm just curious about these two men and how their relationship developed too. Because you have to have so much trust in someone to do this for as long as you do.
1: I think there was a bit They both
0: had to have the same amount of like stamina and creativity and trustworthiness and bravery and just they had to really
1: just always be on the same level. So apparently when Hill got to the camp, and again, there's so much more information in the book that I didn't include here. Apparently when Hill first got to Yozgad, he like had already tried and failed to escape. And so he had a desire to escape. But when he got there, like he realized that none of the people there were, were, they were all non-escape. Like they were not pro-escape. They were like, we're just going to wait it out. We're going to live here and just keep our heads down and do what we're told. And Hill's like, what? I, I want to escape. And so then I think Jones separately had the same want desire to escape. And he saw um, how Hill was pra- like well-practiced in conjuring. So I think it was just seeing... Mm-hmm qualities in one another i don't know who approached who first but anyway i think they just saw these uh good traits and used that to their advantage and look it all worked out it for them all now worked we
0: out. It now worked we out. get to talk about them and their miraculous
1: yeah ruse i hope people enjoyed escape. this story as much as i did because i just thought it was so oh, i was intriguing
0: There were moments where I was having to remind myself to blink and breathe because I was like, well, and then I was like, should I be saying something? Should I react? But I was just so stunned by all of the details. And it's like, what do I even say? Because the next thing you're going to say is going to be just as shocking, (laughs) if not more. Like,
1: how didn't they layer this plan together? I know, I know. Oh, Lordy, Lord, let me tell you about the best way to sleep and the most comfortable way to sleep. It is on my Helix mattress, Thank you to Helix Sleep for making, uh, truly transforming the way I sleep. Back pain, gone.
0: Sleeping through the night, not even getting up to go to the bathroom. Helix Sleep is everything. Helix Sleep is a premium mattress brand that provides tailored mattresses based on your unique sleep preferences. The Helix lineup includes 14 unique mattresses, including a collection of luxury models, a mattress for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids. So Sabrina and I, we have helix mattresses i have more than one and we went online we took the quiz and then we got matched with the perfect mattress for us so we have the moonlight and the midnight Lux mattresses yeah
1: and helix knows there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home so they offer a 100 night trial and a 10 to 15 year warranty to try out your new helix mattress there's models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief. If you sleep on your side, plus enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night. We absolutely love Helix mattress and it's also been awarded the number one mattress by GQ and wired magazine. So take that for what it is. Helix is offering up to 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleepcom T G O G. This is their best offer yet. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now.
0: I knew because you had told me (laughs) that this was, this wasn't an authentic use of a Ouija board. This story. It was, it was a forgery of a Ouija board ghost. So I went looking in our inbox for some real Ouija board experiences. (laughs) And I have one called summoning a demon with a homemade Ouija board and my first sleep paralysis experience. That sounds scary. Yeah. Right. It is. So let's get to (laughs) it. (laughs) Hello, Corinne and Sabrina. My name is Marshall from the mysterious wasteland of Ohio. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wanted to wait until I was caught up completely to send in my story, currently on episode 128. But if I wait any longer, I will forget. So here (laughs) it is. Thank you. When I was 15, myself and a couple other friends were obsessed with all things paranormal. We wanted to be paranormal investigators so bad. One day, we were walking around after school when we walked past an abandoned house. We decided to go in and check it out, just like stupid teenagers, and we were hanging out there for a while, mainly lingering around the first and second floors. Eventually, we made our way to the basement. There wasn't much to see down there, well, except for the enormous pentagram crudely painted on the floor. Not much to see there. <laughs> Just a giant altar for worshipping demons. Yeah, what? That's when my friend one decided, hey, let's summon a demon. (laughs) He pulled out his knife and found a plank of wood in the pile of junk in the corner of the basement. He started carving out a Ouija board while me and friend two were beginning to rethink our friendship with friend one.
1: (laughs) It's a good time to do that.
0: Once it was done, I went to the kitchen and I found a glass cup that we could use as a planchette okay marshall you're immediately saying that you're questioning your friendship and then you actively participate by finding other
1: pieces to use sometimes you get carried away
0: you do you get you're just along for the ride (laughs) we sit around the board placing our fingers on the glass we started asking the usual questions is anyone there can you talk to us yada yada Keep in mind, the wood board is carved on, and it's not all that smooth. We asked if someone was watching us, and the glass shot over to yes. Like, it moved so violently that my fingers almost fell off. Then, without us asking another question, it started to spell out our friend One's name. After that, we quickly said goodbye and got the hell out of that house. Three days later, the fire department was at that house for an unexplainable fire that started in the basement. The fire was contained, the house was repaired and sold, like, six months later. But after the experience, we all started to have stuff happen to us separately. I started having nightmares and trigger warning for suicide, where I would see different versions of myself die by suicide. Oh, no. Friend two started having violent mood swings, going from quiet and calm to absolutely enraged in a manner of seconds and seemingly no trigger. Oh. Friend one, whose name was spelled out on the board, started going through a terrible bout of depression and began to self-harm. After a few months of being affected by whatever was there, it all stopped. I don't know if it got bored of us or if it's just watching and waiting. Hmm. I'm 25 now. I still occasionally feel like I'm being watched. Now, for my sleep paralysis experience. Oh, Yay. <laughs> In 2020, I had to quarantine two weeks before I went back to work. Week one was nice. I was able to catch up on some reading and video games, and I watched the entirety of Steven Universe and Steven Universe Future, and I cried so hard during the finale. Wait, I, I keep it. seeing clips of that show, and I really want to watch oh, it.
1: I don't know it. Okay, let's watch it.
0: Sounds like we're going to cry <laughs> at the end, so <laughs> there's a little... Spoiler for us. Week two was when the boredom set in. I'm not the biggest fan of taking naps because I always wake up cranky, but I decided to sleep some of the day away. I fell asleep pretty quick and I had the dream where I was being chased by shadow creatures. It was pretty fucking terrifying. Yeah. Right when I closed myself into a house in the dream, I woke up. My eyes were looking around, but I quickly realized I couldn't move my body. I started to panic. I heard stories of sleep paralysis and was so scared that I might see something. But what made this horrifying wasn't what I saw, but what I heard. Oh, no. As I tried to get my body to move, I began to hear voices screaming my name and banging and clawing at my door. This went on for what felt like an eternity until I finally was able to wiggle my toes and slowly get control back of my body. I didn't know auditory hallucinations were a thing and holy shit, what a horrible way to find out. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for keeping me entertained throughout my shift. Listening to you two tell stories helps the time go by so much faster and I'm so grateful to you both and this amazing podcast. After I was completely caught up with another spooky podcast and that's why we drink, I began looking for a new podcast to binge and I came across this podcast and was immediately hooked. Yay! Keep up the great work. Stay spooky. See you on the other side. Thanks, Marshall.
1: Um, Marshall, what the heck? I wonder if that sleep paralysis experience and the voices calling Marshall, that is, I think, a a dumpster truck happening. So do you hear that? Um (laughs) not the demon coming from Marshall. Because it was I like vibrated this whole building. Um, but I wonder if that's connected to the spirit or the dark energy that has been following perhaps watching since that day in the basement. Yeah. Oh, I know because the fact is that they said that they still feel like they're being
0: watched, right? And this is years later. The experience in the basement happened as a teen. Marshall is now 25. And if this feeling is consistent, then it doesn't feel like the, that thing really went anywhere. Perhaps it is just dormant. I don't wish it to be Same. i hope it's not i hope marshall can be safe from this entity <laughs> and that maybe it's just well, like a too. freak nap sort of situation and that yeah future naps won't be won't As inflict terrifies on yeah. them
1: yeah i don't know that ouija board experience i mean if anyone needed a reason to not use a ouija board this story once again gives you a good reason not to and uh, especially not if the basement you're doing it in has a pentagram.
0: No. Yeah. And it's like, this is a great example of sometimes it can feel like it will be fun and it can <laughs> quickly turn not fun, yes. right? Like you don't think it's a big deal. But Marshall said that they weren't really using the Ouija board that long, right? Like they were yeah. just asking a few basic questions and it very quickly started moving on its own, spelling out its friends, spelling out their friend's name. Yeah. And then affected each of them individually in a horrific way. So don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Just
1: say no. Just say no to Ouija board. Unless it's going to get you out of uh, prison.
0: Yeah, unless you're truly faking it.
1: (laughs) For your own well-being and safety.
0: But then at the same time, here's another thing. Okay. What if that Ouija board situation in your story in the jail still opened up some sort of portal because they never said goodbye. It's very possible. Even if you're faking it, even if you're with your friends and you're like pushing it around and you're like, my name is Diane and I yeah. died because I farted too much, you know, and all the like 12 year olds are like, Hee-h-h-h-h-h-h.
1: whatever. Yeah. You're still opening the board. You are. I, I Yes. I, I do wonder because there were so many people using Ouija boards and doing these seances at Yozgad. I wonder if some of them were real, and just because wh- whether they were just you know so in- invested in it, they, I mean, they believed all of it, right? So maybe some of them were real because Jones was not the only one holding these seances. I don't, I don't know, mm-hmm. but Jones and Hills at least were not real. But mm-hmm. poor Marshall, there's was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well that was a long episode thank you for joining us and bearing with our no that was stories. so good
0: that was so good this is one of my favorites <laughs> really I loved it
1: yeah it was so interesting it's just so fascinating I had never ever heard of it before and it combined like some of my favorite things history and I don't know cons I guess I like cons oh. <laughs>
0: Criminal activity, yes. Jailbreak, jailbreaks. Maybe I
1: escape from a prison one day, or or one life, one day, (laughs) one day. Maybe you're manifesting it. Maybe. (laughs) Gosh, it's Uh, time to say goodbye. On YouTube,
0: uh, (laughs) comment below what you think Sabrina will go to jail for. (laughs) (laughs) You can find us on all social media channels. And if you're enjoying our show, and if you enjoy any other podcasts out there, please rate and review on iTunes, on Spotify, wherever you listen. It really does help. So does word of mouth. Yes. That helps a ton. And
1: we do hope to see you at our live shows. Yes. Bring your friends. Uh, that's part of the pyramid scheme. You got to bring people mm-hmm. in. And then we'll also see you on Campfire Stories on Patreon. And then we'll see you uh, yes, we will. twice next week with uh, more episodes. And we will see
0: you. See you. Oh, wait. Oh.
1: Oh, we are so excited. We- <laughs> We have a new editor, Christina, who is absolutely incredible. And we're so excited. Crushing it. Next episode, Blown we do away by Christina's a whole work. beginning shout out to Christina because everyone yes. deserves to know how badass Christina is and the amount of work that Christina is putting in to our podcast.
0: And also, we need to hit up Christina to see if she has Some ghost stories, which she definitely does because she has a few podcasts of her own. Yeah. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll uh, get to hear from her soon. Yes. Okay. Now we will See see you on the other side.